1: The Stanford Nuclear Reservation comprises 586 square miles in southeastern Washington. It was selected during World War II as a site for processing plutonium, and it's where the plutonium used in the atomic bombing of Nagasaki was produced. This expansive site eventually housed nine reactors and five processing plants, and it continued to operate until the end of the Cold War. It now collectively holds the largest accumulation of radioactive waste in the Western Hemisphere. In the 1970s, as environmental protection was becoming a national priority, Hanford began to focus on the cleanup of the waste that resulted from plutonium production. One of the first environmental engineers hired was Melvin R. Adams, who went on to work at Hanford for 24 years. Adams is the author of Atomic Geography, a personal history of the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, which was published last year by Washington State University Press. In addition to personal anecdotes and insights into the management of contaminants at Hanford, atomic geography also reveals the paradox of this complex landscape, a radioactive waste site once purposed for atomic destruction, that is also a wildlife refuge. It even includes his poetic response to this historical anomaly. Mel, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Um, I really appreciate you being here. You're welcome. So, uh, just to get started, can you tell me a little bit about your personal background?
2: Well, my personal background was, uh, I grew up in, uh, the desert of southeast Oregon mm-hmm. and, uh, it was cattle in the country and I got a scholarship to go to Oregon State College or University at that time and, uh, I majored in science and later on I got a Master's degree in geology and biology and I actually taught high school for a number of years and then decided to go into the new field of environmental engineering. So I went back to engineering school and got a major in environmental engineering and, uh, there was a job open up here at Hanford and, uh, this was in 1979 because they were just starting to get interested in cleanup, although they were still making plutonium for weapons at that time. Uh, so I was probably one of the first environmental engineers hired at Hanford and was part of a small group that had been assembled to start working on environmental issues. And now, of course, the site is completely... uh shut down, has been for years as far as making plutonium and it's entirely devoted now to clean up because Hanford has it's a very uh complex set of waste sites that are uh, some of them very difficult to deal with and uh so now it's totally devoted to that and uh there's over two billion dollars a year being spent on clean up and will be for decades to come. So that's kind of the scope of the problem.
1: Absolutely. And so so tell me, what made you decide to write this this memoir, this personal history of your experience at Hanford?
2: Well, I spent 24 years there, uh, starting out as an environmental engineer and ultimately an engineering manager. And I found many of the sites at Hanford to be just totally intriguing and um, I also had some really unique experiences, I thought, with not only the people I worked with, but with the uh Department of Energy, and uh, uh I realized that Hanford is totally misrepresented quite often in the press and the general consciousness of people, um, because it's not really a a reactor that, uh, a nuclear power site. Uh, the, although there is a commercial reactor out there, it's on leased land, but it's private, held by a private utility. So Hanford was totally devoted to, uh, making plutonium and it was, uh, it made most of the plutonium for our nuclear stockpile during the Cold War and was used on the uh a Hiroshima bomb that helped defeat Japan in World War II. So. Wow. It was a really unique culture and still is to a certain degree. Uh, the town of Richland was actually built by the government. Uh They even established four churches, one of which is I go to. <laughs> they built a... I'll uh, see using what's called alphabet houses, these were standard designs of uh different kinds of houses that were used to house the operators of of Hanford but during the construction, there were like fifty thousand people living out there in tents and trailers and barracks to actually build the place. but of course, it was a culture of total secrecy. I think, uh, among those 50,000 people, probably only maybe five knew what they were working on or why they were working on it. So and that it, it was like, when I arrived in 1979, it was still a, 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 culture of secrecy and security in many ways. Uh, and uh it's loosened up a lot, of course, now that all the plutonium is gone from the site and they're just totally devoted to cleanup. But, uh, for instance, every year uh, a government agent would come around and interview all our neighbors and coworkers to see if we were up to anything suspicious or if we were in debt or had a... <laughs> Drinking or drug problems or anything that might subject us to um, vulnerability because the the Russians were very active here as trying to glean secrets and access to the files and so forth. So it was a very (laughs) steep environment. Uh, Later on, of course, the city the Richmond was established became free of the government control, and the uh, houses were sold to, to individuals,
1: okay.
2: and I actually live in one of the houses built by the government. So, so
1: you're still living in Hanford after retiring? It,
2: yeah, I still live in Richmond, which is uh, the closest town. There's really no people living out on Hanford, per se. Okay. It's uh, it's 580 square miles, and... uh. During the beginning of World War II, there were farms out there, and they were removed. Farmers were removed and uh, hadn't been occupied by residents ever since.
1: And how was Hanford originally selected as a site um, for the production of plutonium?
2: Well, the Army, you know, the President Roosevelt at that time, in part prompted by a letter from Einstein, was worried that the Germans were going to develop nuclear weapons. So he established the Manhattan Project, which is a totally secret project. And Hanford was selected as the main place to to, uh, make plutonium. For one thing, it's a a desert, and it's... it was very isolated at that time and, uh, there was, uh, plenty of water. It's right next to the Columbia River. Mm. Uh, the Grand Coulee Dam upstream provided ample power. So they needed a lot of electricity. And, uh, there weren't that many farmers to move off the land. And, uh, so it was, a kind of a natural place. Mm. So they the army flew over in a light plane. They were exploring sites throughout the West, and when they saw this, they <laughs> this is it. This part of ideal conditions.
1: And this was the so, main site for plutonium production in the U.S.
2: Yeah, right. And so I think like sixty percent. I think that's the figure is of the plutonium was made here. Uh, so that was major goal here.
1: Absolutely. And then tell me a little bit about those the misconceptions that you mentioned, that people have misconceptions of, of Hanford. What do you think those misconceptions are? Well,
2: the, the, the main misconception is it's a huge toxic wasteland that threatens the Columbia River and everything like that, and it's going to kill everyone.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> That's just not the case. Actually, it... Of the five hundred and eighty square miles, uh only a small portion of that was actually used for reactors and uh processing plants. Now there's no question that there's a, there were a lot of environmental issues left behind, which I go into in my book. But progress has been made on some of those and there's a lot a lot of work left to do. But as far as in contaminating the Columbia River and posing a threat now is just not true. Okay. In fact, the groundwater plumes out there are shrinking all the time due to treatment. And, uh, the, uh, most of the waste sites are either cleaned up or well in con- under control. So, uh, although there are a few setbacks, for instance, in my book, I have a chapter about the Purex tunnels, yes. where rail cars with highly contaminated processing equipment were pushed back into these tunnels and uh, sealed off, and they are extremely hot, so to speak. Well, here a few weeks ago, one of them collapsed, one, the oldest one collapsed. And the UAE responded to the emergency very well and correctly. I thought they did the right thing. And uh, but those those kinds of vulnerabilities are mm-hmm. still out there and need to be worked on. And at this point, it just involves money mm. and and time to do it. But most of the site is not contaminated. In fact, most of it is environmentally pristine. They've, uh, found a number of, uh, species of plants that are no, and animals, particularly insects, moths. They're not found anywhere else. Um, there's an elk herd. There's, uh, large populations of all kinds of birds and animals. So, uh, it's basically, uh, a wildlife refuge. Which is? And, uh. So that was a yeah, that was quite the irony, and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book.
1: You do in the book you call it a place of, of paradox. This concrete steel yeah. monument to the birth of the nuclear age that's actually surrounded by wild terrain, um, which is quite a captivating image, and and I think very evocative. And the the stories that you tell throughout the book really kind of bring to light this this paradox where you have kind of wild animals and tumbleweeds infringing on this um highly scientific and managed space. Um I yes. wanna ask you a little bit about the nineteen seventies and the period in which you were brought in to work in Hanford as an environmental engineer and that kind of transition when when Hanford realized that cleanup was going to be an important part of their of their work. Um, can you speak a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, uh, as far as, well, the site at that time was still completely devoted to making plutonium, but, uh, uh, my boss was, who was a civil engineer, was hired to form a small group to start working on some of the environmental issues, so we were kind of a small renegade group, <laughs> I've got a few stories about that, uh, in the book, and, uh, we basically started, uh, trying to, uh, get a handle on all the waste sites and what was in them and what could be done about them, uh, conceptually. And that eventually led to, uh, some detailed engineering and some de- uh, uh, demonstration projects, which, uh, then further down the road led to some real success at cleanup, of particularly of groundwater and contaminated soils and contaminated bi- biota, in other words, plants and animals. So that was uh, an important part of the group that was set up. And uh, there weren't very many uh, environmental engineers. I may have been the only one for quite a while.
0: Mm.
2: But there were geologists and Groundwater hydrologists and biologists and uh um, kinds of engineers um, so it was pretty interesting
1: and you were uh, really brought in in the context of kind of as of environmental protection becoming a national priority in the u s
2: yeah, I just had finished my work in environmental engineering, so I was kind of up to date on that. Uh, new field of engineering, and uh, so they felt that they needed me up here, so I took the job and worked there 24 years, so.
1: And and tell me about some of the projects that you were involved in early on, in that kind of initial, initial push to really figure out what the scale and scope of waste cleanup would be.
2: Well, I never will forget my first job assignment. Uh we had some large ponds. Three of them were, net, were uh, man-made ponds, you know, but one was natural. But anyway, the waters that were discharged were were discharged in very large quantities and were contaminated to some degree. So, uh my boss was aware that a lot of new environmental laws have been passed. Uh, particularly under President Nixon. Believe it or not, <laughs> he did some good things. Uh, and I want you to write, uh, a analysis of how these laws are going to affect, affect the cleanup of these ponds. So I wrote this paper called Pond Management and the Law, and I pointed out that there were some, uh, major laws, including CERCLA, and RECRA, the Research Conservation Recovery Act, that were going to have a big impact, and several other laws were going to have a big impact uh, on how Hanford was run. And uh so I this went out to review, like all the documents written at Hanford. And it was uh, stopped at by almost everyone out there in the technical and management ranks Cause they thought all they would ever have to worry about is the Atomic Energy Act, which uh, basically regulates you know nuclear weapons and such mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't believe in my paper, so I just put it in a desk drawer, and six months later uh, the agreement was signed between the environmental protect protection agency of the state of Washington and the Department of Energy to require that Hanford comply with all these laws.
0: Hmm.
2: And uh, that never changed Hanford, I mean, as far as... Now it was highly regulated, it was highly supervised. It was... You had to do certain kinds of documentation and follow certain kinds of rules. And uh, so that really was uh meant that our group had to do detailed catalogs of everything that was out there hmm. to start with and that took quite a quite a while because there's so many different sites and different kinds of sites
1: how many sites are work? Uh, there's,
2: a, there's a figure in my book there's well over a thousand
1: wow
2: and uh there's a number of, of, uh, groundwater plumes, some of which were, yeah, there's 1,800 where, 1,400 facilities, nine plutonium production reactors, then there's 100 square miles of contaminated groundwater. Those, that's less now because they've been pumping and treating a lot of that, removing it. Mm-hmm. 56 million gallons of waste in 177 underground tanks. That's really where the most difficult problems lie. And so well over a billion dollars a year is being spent on a plant to recover the waste, those 56 million gallons, and convert them to glass for permanent permanent storage.
1: But you're skeptical about that approach in the book
2: yeah i i will, uh and uh of course, under our new president, the budget is under tight scrutiny,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh Congress, as I predicted, would eventually get skeptical of spending millions of dollars uh well over a billion dollars a year just on that part of Hanford to build these amazingly complex Plants to turn the waste into glass. And, uh, they actually create a lot of problems, uh, themselves. But the main, the main issue I had is that Hanford has always been dominated by chemical engineering. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And, uh, there was very little, uh, attention given to geotechnical engineering. In other words, Processes where you work with the, with the geology and the land to come up with solutions to these problems. So we developed quite a few techniques so we could in situ dispose. In other words, leave the waste where they are. Hmm. And, uh, instead of digging them up at great expense and, uh, exposure to workers and so forth, and then just putting them in a new place, uh, just leave them where they are and basically seal them off from plants, animals, uh, snow, rain, and, and wind. Hmm. And there's ways to do that that could last for thousands of years. So I thought a lot of the tanks could have been, been disposed in situ. Hmm. Plus the, uh, computer modeling of the groundwater showed that. Even if you did nothing to these wastes and they all leaked into the ground, there was still no threat to the Columbia River for a number of reasons. I'm not saying that we should just do nothing, but uh, there were ways to deal with with those wastes in place for far less money. And... uh, they're still years away from, from starting up that glass plant. And uh there's been a lot of technical issues, some of which they've solved. So I guess I'm feeling a little better about it, but I don't think that they're going to be able to sustain the funding level to uh, actually get that done, maybe at all, but just my feeling.
1: But there are Given issues that. Um, with those tanks leaking,
2: to some extent yeah they have there's quite a few of them that have leaked, but those often lead hysteria, but the fact is that they have been pumped so that all the pumpable liquid has been removed, and uh, the leaks that have occurred have not really been the cause of the groundwater contaminants, what was the cause of the groundwater contaminants is that when the processing plants and the reactors were operating, they pumped billions of gallons of water directly to the ground year after year after year. And that's what caused these groundwater plumes for the most part. So the leaking tanks, it's like building a a golden barn after the horses have run off. (laughs) The real reason was Uh, All that groundwater, all that water was pumped to the ground directly, Mm -hmm. and uh, so the tanks have been relatively insignificant in the groundwater pollution at Hanford, and that is just a lot of people just don't want to hear that, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm pretty sure they're going to go ahead and continue with the last plant unless Congress. Cuts them off, money-wise, which is likely. And, uh, plant that complex, based upon our past history at Hanford, it's going to be up and down, up and down. There's going to be all kinds of issues and problems. It may not operate consistently, but they'll probably operate it long enough to crap it up and then we'll be faced with a huge complex facility it'll have to be cleaned up in the future. So, mm-hmm. no, it wasn't my favorite. In fact, the environmental impact statements that were done showed that in-situ disposal was far less expensive and far safer mm. to to both the workers and the environment. But it required a, a geotechnical approach instead of a chemical engineering approach and, There was kind of bias, perception bias Mm -hmm. that was at work. Mm -hmm. So, it was just never going to happen to do in situ disposal.
1: And when, when was that um, glass plant originally proposed? Was, that was during your time at Hanford?
2: Oh yes, Yeah, it was.
1: So this has actually been a long time in them, in the making?
2: It's been a while. It's, uh, they've been working on it for what, maybe 10 years now? Okay. Ever since I retired, been under construction, and it still isn't finished. So, all the studies were done probably 20 years ago.
1: Okay. And can you tell me a little bit about the growth of the environmental group? So, it started with with your boss, who was a civil engineer. He hires you, um, one of the first environmental engineers at Hanford, um, and then you have a small group of a handful of people that eventually grows to about 120 employees um, solely dedicated to looking at the environmental effects and cleanup of this plutonium processing site. Can you tell me about that that evolution and that increased focus on, um, on cleanup and on environmental impact and how that grew over time?
2: Well, I was given the job of managing one of the groups, and we had 120 people, and uh, millions of dollars of contracts, contractors were involved, and six managers. There were other groups that did other things. Um, okay, so instance,
1: more than 120 employees.
2: How- oh yeah, eventually, eventually there was, there was like. Well, right now I, there's probably 8,000 people out there, and they're all involved in cleanups in one way or another. Right. So it became very the dominant uh thing to do out there. But my personal history was managing the environmental engineering group and our our job was groundwater, um, plants and animals, uh plant and animal control, uh groundwater, drilling new monitoring wells, cleanup of soil sites and um
1: that kind of thing. Did you find that um, plants and animals would be contaminated? I mean, you, you, you mentioned your, your original report about, um, on pond management and the law, which was poorly received, but probably retrospectively, <laughs> the people who read it should have thought more carefully about it at the time. But while you were writing that report, you, you write about how many um, coyotes you saw at that pond. At one of the ponds that you were that you were investigating, kind of despite the contaminated water, that these were virtual wildlife refuges, that um, you'd seen more coyotes there than you'd seen, kind of on the the desert plains of of Oregon. So, so I mean, did you find instances of animal contamination? Um, yeah. Can you,
2: can you? Yes, we did. Um, we had a group called the Bugs and Bunny Boys. Uh there, for some reason there weren't any women involved at that time but there should have been But uh, and they called themselves the weeds
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they had to deal with contaminated tumbleweeds on a large area called the BC control area and what would happen is that Russian thistle would put down very deep roots and go down into where some of the wastewaters had been Positive and contaminated the sediments, and they would bring up these radionuclides, and then the coyotes and badgers and well, rabbits and such would get exposed to these and spread the contamination around in little little spots.
0: Hmm.
2: So um, that has since been totally cleaned up and put in a engineered landfill. But at that time, it was a major job. They, each year, they'd have to go out and, and spray to, to knock down the Russian thistles and then replant with uh, maybe bunch grasses, mm. which, did, which did not have deep roots. Right. And uh, that really helped control the the tumbleweeds because those would blow into the Columbia River. Mm-hmm. They're very, very slightly contaminated but still it was not desirable to have contaminated tumbleweeds floating down the Columbia River.
1: No. Yeah. And then so, the contaminated animals that you would that your group would find, and kind of what were the the outcomes there?
2: Well it didn't kill the animals and we we didn't either, but what we would do is try to control the plants that were available. Okay. But the the wouldn't be any habitat really suitable for the for the animals. Or we you know, tried to clean up the site so that they wouldn't get into it. But um the uh building where the bugs and bunny boys were uh was really kind of a strange place. It was like a a co- college biology lab and a uh, a a farmer's barn all together. It had large spraying equipment in there and farm equipment but they also had freezers full of contaminated animals that they had collected to be analyzed and uh, they were also called in to do other uh, biological control things like rattlesnakes would quite often get into the buildings out there because the buildings were kind of in the middle of a you know a sagebrush desert and uh things would get in there like rattlesnakes or rabbits or whatever. Uh wow. even had tri pilots try to get in. And of course some of the employees got kind of upset when they saw snakes in the hallway. <laughs> so they had to go in and get the snakes out and but one of the most unusual calls we got was Mattel, which is the national lab, and does all kinds of scientific work, still do. And, uh, they were doing a lot of experiments with, with mice. Well, some of the mice got loose, and, uh, it was really wrecking the protocols of their experiment. So, the guys were called down to capture these, these live mice. So, uh, they said, well, we need some rolled oats and peanut butter. We need quite a bit of it to bait the traps. Because they used rolled, they used live traps. Mm. So, I wrote out emergency order so they could just go out to the store and buy these things. And they caught the mice before they did too much damage to the experiments. And, uh, Later on, after the Bills came back, my I, one of the I had a lot of different managers. One of the glories of working at Hanford, you had five or six managers. One of them came in and said, What are you doing, trying to feed your family on the government dollar? What's all this rolled oats and peanut butter for? Well, I explained to him, and he went away kind of sheepish. Because... <laughs> She thought I was buying rolled oats and peanut butter to feed my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they... So we got involved in all kinds of strange projects like that.
1: I mean, you can you have kind of several anecdotes in your in in the book, and you also you have a whole chapter dedicated to anomalies and unusual events at Hanford, um, where right. you mention the the purex, the railroad tunnels, one of which had the roof collapse in May, as you mentioned. Um, and you you talk about these and other forms of, of burial ground, which also kind of create this very interesting visual picture of all of these kind of you know contaminated railways and things that then get kind of ushered into these underground tunnels because they 've been contaminated by the materials that they 've carried over time um, could you yeah could you talk a little bit more about about some of these kind of oddities that you Kind of experienced and and discovered at Hanford.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the most intriguing places at Hanford, and I have a chapter about it in the book, is was U Pond, and U Pond was a a pond where wastewater from labs and the laundry and uh, uh, other facilities went. So. So much water was put to this pond that it, it was basically just a low spot in the terrain. And it became a pond because of so much water and was being put to it. And it became kind of a oasis for wildlife. But the interesting thing about it is that it also had a very high level of plutonium in it. So it became kind of a mecca for PhDs and scientists to study how plutonium moves throughout the environment. So there's a lot of research done on U-pond. And I said in the book that I thought it was probably the most studied pond in the world. Uh, And some of the uh, studies were uh, quite interesting. They found, for instance, that plutonium is not very mobile in the environment, at least in the soil's and groundwater, Uh, it just doesn't... In fact, we brought a machine up from the Nevada test site to try to wash some plutonium out of the soil, and you just couldn't do it. It was so tightly bound. So that's one of the things they learned, is that plutonium is not very mobile unless it's organically complexed. It just doesn't move very, very well in the soil or groundwater. Uh, they did all kinds of studies on how much the animals were uptaking and what kinds of animals were visiting the pond and, and all the birds and insects they did, uh, studies on and it was just intriguing. And, uh, it, you go down there, it looked just like a nice fishing pond. And, uh, it was, had a dock and a little boat.
0: <laughs>
2: oh. It was full of goldfish. Someone had planted goldfish in there. And the goldfish flourished as they also did in some of the other ponds. And when the U-Pond was eventually drained and covered and stabilized, uh, they found tens of thousands of goldfish in there. So, things can really live in these environments, because the radiation levels are just not that high, Um, and they, you know, living things are pretty adaptable.
1: So, they're Um, living there despite the plutonium concentrations. not There's not any relationship between the plutonium concentrations and this high level of of life there. Okay, so it's...
2: It was just uh, because... Because water was put it so much into the desert, it became just like a magnet. And interestingly enough, in my study of pond management and the law, I found an obscure state regulation that said if you destroy habitat in the desert, basically, you have to replace it. Well, when they decommissioned uh, Gable Mountain Pond and and U-Pond, they destroyed the habitat for a lot of animals and birds and insects and so on and so forth. And, uh, so they should have replaced it, habitat, with a with a clean pond, but they didn't, of course. <laughs> so, but that was an interesting thing that uh, most people weren't aware of. It. There is a regulation on that. So it was uh, just an intriguing place. Um, that's enough plutonium in Gable in the u to make a um, Nagasaki bomb if you could get it out of the sediment and concentrate it but that's impossible to do because like I said you can't even wash it out so mm-hmm. on purpose mm-hmm. so it's it's pretty much stuck there in the sediments, and, uh, I don't know if they'll someday dig that all up and put it in a landfill or not, but right now it's, it's, uh, really not a problem.
0: Hmm.
2: So, I don't know if they'll get around to that or not.
1: But quite amazing to think that, that all of that plutonium is concentrated in, in kind of a relatively small area, yet still somehow managed to not, be
2: harmful to all of these creatures. Well, there was was another chapter in my book about the the trench, which had received even more plutonium. And I didn't work on this project, but the uh, plutonium levels were so high that I thought there might be a criticality, you know, where the plutonium gets together in the right configuration to actually cause the... uh, a reaction the a chain reaction that would not have been desirable no and so they actually went in there with robots to examine and uh mine some of the sediment out of that trench and uh, i forget exactly how much plutonium they eventually took out of that and uh, they also put down some poison so that uh uh, plutonium could not uh, fish in. But it was... Yeah, plutonium did accumulate sometimes, but it just it was very difficult to, to get it out of there. You had to basically dig it out.
1: And um tell me a little bit about living in Richland, which, as you mentioned, was a, a town created specifically for the workers employed at Hanford. Um You mentioned kind of it was kind of very strategically constructed Um, amenities were created kind of social centers like churches were created in this town can you tell me a little bit about life there especially because I'm I imagine all of your kind of friends and neighbors are also incredibly integrated in the life of the Hanford Reservation
2: yeah of course that's completely changed now the area is booming for other reasons Mm. But that's that's good. But uh, when I arrived in 79, there was still plutonium production going on. So there was still this culture of secrecy. And like I said, the annual visits by uh, federal agents and all of that. My wife never saw where I worked. I was never able to take a camera out there to photograph it. Um... well, so she, to this day, doesn't really understand what I did. Of course she read the book, but um it was just a, a very different kind of a, a culture. It was, it wasn't that difficult to adjust to, but it wouldn't certainly be for everyone. Now a lot of that has completely eased up. Uh, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. But I got a helicopter going over. Anyway, the culture was was such that they would uh if you burned out a light bulb in your house, you just called up General Services Administration, they would come change your light bulb. Uh that kind of later on, of course, after the homes were sold and the city of Richmond was incorporated.
1: When was that?
2: When did a that happen? Lot of, I'm gonna say in the seventies. Okay. Yeah, early seventies I think is when they But a lot of the, of course, all of the government houses are still here in the older part of town. And some of them have been totally refurbished and modified, like we're modifying our house right now, adding another addition to it. So uh, they're very, very well-made houses. They, uh, Even though they built a whole block in a week, these houses were made of very sturdy beams and planks that you can't even get anymore. Mm. Um, so they're very, very sturdy houses, uh, and they're very amenable to being added onto and that kind of thing. So um,
1: And tell me a little bit more about the, the culture of secrecy at, at Hanford. Right. So it... Hanford was producing plutonium until the end of the Cold War in 1988, and so uh, over almost let's say a nine-year period of your time there, there must have been this continued kind of oh, yeah. culture of secrecy. Where, um, and it was obviously, obviously the government had had you know very high stakes in in what was going on at Hanford. So can you can you tell me? I mean, what it was like to yeah to work there to work among colleagues who who were working on something that where they didn't really understand or know the in, the final purpose of their work
2: well of course we knew because the secret was out after the
1: um
2: uh, nagasaki bomb was dropped but yes. we really couldn't um we were working on a a project that required a queue clearance we really couldn't share those do- those documents were st- strictly controlled they had to be put away every day and secured and you could not of course take them home or,
0: mm.
2: or we couldn't photograph them I mean you just couldn't access them except during working hours
0: mm.
2: of course our lunch boxes were searched coming in and going out every day. Mm. Um, where we had badges and you didn't want to leave it at home because you couldn't get in. Um, I remember sometimes working on weekends and uh, going out into the hall to be confronted with a fully armed guy in a black vest and <laughs> helmet and everything mm. with a machine gun. He what are you doing here? And I had to explain it to him. Mm. So... There were uh, there was just a lot of, of secrecy and security.
1: You mentioned even and, that your wife didn't always kind of know the full extent of, of what was going on at Hanford. I would imagine that would be the same for several spouses of, of employees at the site. Yeah. Um, I mean, did, did that affect your, your kind of social lives in Richland, where you're imagined socializing with other people who are working at Hanford? Because that would have... You know employees would have made up the majority of the town's population um i mean was, was did that i don't know affect your kind of yeah recreational lives
2: well it it sort of did all of the time I got here the um, was, was towards the end of the cold War, so that was trying to ease up a bit there wasn't as much uh you couldn't. A lot of people still couldn't talk about their jobs if they were dealing with secret materials. So I didn't discuss that with anyone, but um, they people generally knew what I was doing. Uh, They just weren't able to see what I was doing because of the restrictions. Yes, of course. I remember going by the guardhouse on the morning of 9-11 after the New York attacks and I said to the guard you better increase security because there's something going on back east
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh they did almost immediately clamp down on um security at the site so yeah it it did affect your life quite a bit for instance uh during these annual uh visits by Federal agents, you had to answer questions about your coworkers. Like, uh, and they asked questions that would be unimaginable today, like, you know, are you gay, are you, uh, a drug addict, or are you in debt, you know, those kinds of things. So it was, you didn't, you didn't have much uh, privacy no. as far as As far as that goes, there's a lot of changes that have occurred. For instance, every year some monks come in, and uh, on the, this is usually during the anniversary of the Nagasaki bomb dropping, Mm. and they will walk clear out to Hanford in the stifling heat, and uh, it's pretty well accepted. Uh, Their protests are pretty well accepted and they're supported by the churches and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh so that's a, a change. Um, the main cultural difference is that hackers becoming less and less important in our economy. And uh there's concerns about the budgets and layoffs and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um so it's not as uh, dominant as it used to be culturally, not even close.
1: Well, and of course, the, yeah. I'm sure the um, employment, you know, the numbers have changed dramatically since plutonium production stopped. Um, yeah, they there's, it became really just a cleanup operation.
2: Yeah, although the,
1: the site still had
2: probably the same number of employees, they just didn't do the same job. Okay. Because cleanup, in a way, is just as difficult as uh, creating plutonium. Yes. In fact, they just uh, completely took down the plutonium finishing facility where uh, a lot of the plutonium was processed, and that that was a very tricky long-term job to get that done
1: and i I want to then kind of move towards the the transition so this kind of full scale evolution of of hanford from from a nuclear production site um to a national park, which really I think exemplifies this this paradox that you that you write about in the book um, so in in two thousand, you mentioned that Clinton created the Hanford Reach National Monument mm-hmm. along the Columbia yeah. River. And then in 2015, uh, the Manhattan Project National Historical Park opened, which includes Hanford. Um, can you talk about this this idea of Hanford as a national park and, and Hanford's future?
2: Well, the part of the Hanford that was uh, created by the Hanford Reach National Monument is just uh, it's the last free flowing part of the Columbia River, and uh, it's just gorgeous. You can take jet boat tours up the river and you'll see all kinds of wildlife and the white bluffs which are unique geologically. There's a the historical park uh, at Hanford includes only uh, B reactor Mm
0: -hmm.
2: but that's fascinating because it's been preserved in its pretty much original configuration so there's the tours that go out there are sold out instantly. <laughs> uh, the National Park Service will eventually get more access to some of these things, like B Reactor. Um, and as far as the the, the uh, reach, National Monument, there's going to be a lot more access, both from land and from the river, in the future, so people can camp and so forth. Mm-hmm. There is parts of Hanford though that are, have been really restricted and kind of still are. For instance, Rattlesnake Mountain is a, quite a place as far as this diversity of plants and animals. There's animals that are found nowhere else in the world and, or I mean plants, but, uh, there's unique species of, of animals, uh, lots of moths that are totally unique. Insects, they, they think there may be as many as 15,000 different insect species out there, which is, most have not been cataloged. Mm. There's a uh, elk herd, there's burrowing owls, there's all kinds of shorebirds along the river. So it's just a, because it was isolated so long, has really been undisturbed. There hasn't been a lot of environmental degradation, so unfortunately Trump is reviewing the national monuments that were created under the Democrats, and uh, uh, he may try to dispose of Hanford Reach. I don't think he'll be able to do it, but Mm it would be a real shame, because it is a very unique area.
1: And I think he'll get a lot of opposition from from Washington state politicians. Um, but you write as well about, you, you mentioned Elk earlier, kind of who had migrated into the Hanford area after the 1930s precisely because it was, it, it kind of became this de facto protected area in a sense, obviously for um, not in the same way that we think about national parks, but because because the farms were, were removed um, and great kind of swaths of land were, were undevelopable. Um, you, right. you write about these elk that, that came in and kind of as a kind of as a um, as a potential kind of symbol for future reintroduction of species or, or really rewilding of of Hanford. Um, yeah, which I think is is really interesting to think about this this place that had yeah been so scientifically managed, um, really a, a a place that. Was intended to to produce uh, material for destruction, and now you have this this life that kind of comes in on its own.
2: Yeah, it's a total paradox.
1: Mm. And I think you're. Um, I didn't mention that you you are also a poet, which I think is is probably one of the reasons that your memoir is so beautifully written. But the book does include um, poems at the end that really. Um, that really demonstrates this paradox quite beautifully.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I've always responded to the place poetically. Um, I don't know really too many others that have, but um, I think a lot of people appreciate the poetic uh, interpretation of Hanford, but... It's because it is, it is such a paradox. It's really an interesting place to write poetry about.
1: And you continue to write poetry.
2: Yes, I do. I uh, I write uh, more of poetry about nature and the spiritual dimension of nature. I do through my church and so forth. And uh, I've actually writ- written a book of poetry that I. Self-published, and uh, won quite a few contests and published in journals and such. So mm. I'm a poet in residence for my church. Oh wow. <laughs> but most churches don't have a poet in
1: residence. I've never heard of a poet in residence. I think you're you are the first poet in residence <laughs> that I've heard of. And um and what are your plans next? What are
2: well that you're working on? I'm thinking about writing a, a. when I was in college I worked for the forest service and for four summers surveying logging roads and I'm thinking about writing a memoir of those experiences fantastic
1: um, no it sounds wonderful I'm sure I will look forward to reading that in the future as well but, um,
2: because uh, a lot of unique things happen uh, and uh I got very well acquainted with the Fremont National Forest, and it's a also a very uh, unique uh, unique place, both historically and naturally so I thought it might be worth a book. I don't know if I've got the energy that I'll try. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's, um, it's been fantastic to speak to you about Hanford and your experiences and, and your book. Thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you.
1: That was my interview with Melvin Adams, author of Atomic Geography, A Personal History of the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. Thanks for joining me on New Books and Environmental Studies.